This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we take a deeper dive into one of the topics we hear about from listeners the most, Midrash, and we'll answer the most commonly asked question from our entire run of the podcast. What is that question, Marty? <laughs> I, I have gotten this question so much. Like, it's not even, it's not even close. Like, if it, is it really the most asked question of all the emails you get? It, it, like yes, without question, it is the most commonly received email in my inbox. Averaging these days, I don't know, seven to twelve emails a day. I get it probably once a week. This is how often we see this. <laughs> That's a lot. So this this episode first aired, or the episode that we're we're talking about first aired in September 2016. Indeed, you feel like I could have I could have saved me a whole lot of time by recording something like this in the last five years, right? Yeah, probably four and a half years. <laughs> September 2016 to February 2021. That's a lot of emails. Yeah, well, better late than never. But yeah, I have responded, uh, and I don't have any like cool keystroke or anything set up to just do an auto response. I Type out my response every time, like a good, dutiful teacher. The authentic Marty Solomon experience. <laughs> All right, we've held them in suspense long enough. What is the most commonly asked question in all of the Bayma email inbox? It is this. Marty, you said that the Midrash taught that Yiska and Sarai were the same person. They were the same woman by two different names, but this talking about the same person. How can this be? Because when you do the math using later details in the book of Genesis, Abraham being the firstborn, you end up with Haran and the math just it's there's no there's no question the math comes out Haran would be 10 years old at the at the at the oldest. Haran would have to be 10 years old when uh, when when Yiska, his daughter, was born. And that's weird, right? And he has two other children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so, so how, how could this be, Marty? And so for anybody that needs the reference point, Brent, we're talking about episode eight. Is that right? Buried in a genealogy? Correct. Link will be in the show notes if you need it, but... Episode 8. Episode 8. You can go back and review. That was for anybody that's been with us in real time. That was 2016. That was a long time ago. So uh, one of our first episodes and one of our first real exposures to the power of Midrash. So a really cool episode, but definitely obviously raised a, a major question. But that link's in the show notes if you want to go review that episode. But first of all, let me just say this. I, I'm I'm amazed. I'm literally amazed at how many astute listeners we have the biblical awareness that they that obviously so many people have to pull details together i mean brent you you know me i like bible i like details i like i like making sure that things make sense and work i like to study yes you know this about me of course okay i i i haven't dug like I wasn't necessarily. I remember the very first time I got that email. Oh, if I would have only known back then how many times I would see it. But I remember the very first time I got that email, just a, a week or two after we published that episode. And I went, oh, 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 yeah. Oh, goodness. Um, 
I had just never even thought about those details. I had assumed. And so one of the things that I would also say about this is that in, even in that moment, I was still learning. I was trusting the Midrash. Like I have been around the Midrash enough, even at that point in 2016, I was trusting the Midrash. I know the Midrash after a couple thousand years of rabbinic conversation, after thousands of years of studying the Bible. The Midrash doesn't make stupid mistakes. Like I have yet to find the Midrash make some just dumb mistake because they aren't paying attention to the text. Like, so, so I was just kind of trusting the Midrash and hadn't really thought that part through. And the moment somebody asked it, I was like, oh, goodness, yeah. Uh, yeah, how do you answer that question? So I'll pause here just long enough to make a point, which is that I'm constantly in, in learning mode as well. I'm constantly learning new things. I'm constantly evolving. I'm constantly... I'm learning. I'm just learning. I'm not a teacher that knows everything. I'm a teacher who's also a student. I'm a teacher who's a student, which by the way, that's the only kind of teacher that's out there is a teacher who is a student. So we often like, I think our pride often gets in the way and we kind of posture ourselves up as this authority voice. And we feel like we can't ever let people see the cracks in that vessel. And yet the truth of the matter is, we only know what we know, and that's not everything. So we're always learning things. I'm assuming a lot of listeners will be aware of this uh, concept um, from experience or, or at least just hearing from other people. But being a teacher or teaching, teaching anything makes you a better person at that thing. So you can dabble around in your shop uh, doing some woodworking. But then if you bring someone in, in and they're like, okay, what does that do? And you're like, oh, well, um, and then that, that like motivates you to go and learn more how that thing works. So the more we talk about this, the more we're motivated to go learn more about it. So of course we're going to be learning. Absolutely. And that's a great point because it does this stuff poke at my insecurities all the time. Oh man, like you wouldn't believe. And yet I hope that especially as I'm getting older, I'm getting better and better and better at shelving those insecurities and just embracing my what I don't know, embracing my shortcomings, embracing my finite abilities and limitations. Like that's just a, a part of this. And it reminds us that all we are, I get I get some of these email, these emails too, Brent. Uh, all we are, you and I, like we're just hacks with an internet connection and podcast microphones, right? Like we don't, I don't have a bunch of letters after my name. Do you have a bunch of letters after your name? Um, I mean, uh, no, no. <laughs> Marty Solomon, BA. Like that's all we can put after my name. Uh, I, I've got, got a good old undergrad bachelor's degree. I have a passion for studying. I love to study. I'm sure that if I had dedicated myself to education and academia, I'd have all kinds of letters after my name, but I don't. I have a podcast microphone. I have an internet connection. I have... Uh, libraries full of books. I, I even said libraries because it's. I have so many of them, I can't even call it one library with a straight face. I just, I love to study. But all I am is just a person who's learning and trying to pass on the things I'm learning to everybody else. So let's, uh, we paused there for quite a bit. That was a good, that was a good, a, a good substantial rabbit trail right there, Brent Billings. We haven't even gotten back to the question yet, but it's good just to pause and say, all we're doing, all we're doing, is just learning along the way. That's that's all it is. That's what it looks like. Um, so so let's let's deal with this question. The problem that this the problem, 
this question comes up, the problem that leads to this question, I was going to say, is the fact that my language in the episode, and you just listened to the episode to review, Brent, I believe, my language, maybe you can give comment to this. I, I kind of insinuated that Abraham's the firstborn in that episode, didn't I? Uh, maybe. I feel like my language insinuated it. I know my mind was there. I don't think I said it explicitly, but I feel like my language insinuated, yeah, Abraham shows up first. Abraham's the firstborn. I, w- I was listening to it fairly passively. I probably should have asked you ahead of time. The uh, I don't see these questions that you're getting. So you've had the question once a week for the last four and a half years. <laughs> I am not privy to these questions or your answers. So I don't know what the conversation is around it. I'm not as familiar with um, the surrounding issues. So right. I just kind of like threw it on while I was getting stuff ready for the episode. So I wasn't listening very closely to your language to be able to answer that question. But sure. Right. Yeah. So so that's where the problem kind of starts. Because if... Uh, if Abraham, if Avram is the firstborn, that's how you can do the math. And you can hold the math against, well, Haran has to be this old. Like, it takes a really astute Bible reader. I'm still impressed. But that's, if Avram's not the firstborn, that changes everything. So I, I get this question years ago, and I, I, I start to go digging, right? Um, and this actually shows up in the middle of session one as we get to the end of the book of Genesis, Brent. I think you and I have a conversation in one of those later episodes about Joseph, Jacob. I think we have a conversation about the genealogy of Noah and his sons and about the firstborn motif that shows up. But I start digging in the Midrash and I find out that there's actually two traditions. There's two traditions. One tradition, which is kind of less popular... One tradition that is less popular says that Haran does, he is the firstborn and does in fact father Yiska. Uh, I, I don't know if it says miraculously, kind of implies miraculously at the age of eight. So that tradition says he, Yiska is conceived when Haran is eight years old. And that's how it works out. And that's the less popular theory. That's the less popular theory. Now what I, what I wanted to do is go, oh, good. Whew. So I'm not, I wasn't crazy. And that's what I meant to say, but it wasn't. <laughs> I really didn't even know about these traditions. So I didn't misspeak, but I did that completely out of ignorance. I didn't realize that I wasn't misspeaking when I didn't misspeak. Isn't that fun? Um, but the more popular Midrash says, points out that Avram is not actually the firstborn. That Haran's the firstborn, which explains, A, how the ages can be where they're at. Because Yiska, Sarah, is only going to be 10 years, 9 years younger than Avram. That explains how that can be true, because she is a daughter of the firstborn son, Haran. It also explains why Haran is married with children, which we pointed out in the episode. We're like, that's weird. Why is Avram and Nahor not married? But Haran, if he's not the firstborn, like, why is he married with kids? Like, why is that true? Um, and that explains that, because Haran was the firstborn. So there's actually details in the text that would lead us to believe that. But then it also fits the Genesis motif. There is a motif in Genesis, which I, I believe you and I point out later towards the end of Genesis, beginning of Exodus, where Noah's sons operate out of order. Like Shame, this kind of the star, he's the 
going to be the great father of the Jewish people in that genealogy. Shem is not the firstborn of Noah. Avram is not going to be the firstborn of Terah. Uh, Isaac is not the firstborn of Avram. Jacob is not the firstborn of Isaac. Joseph is not the firstborn of Jacob. So actually, if you want a consistent motif all the way through the line of Genesis, one of the things that end up showing up is that none of them are actually the firstborn. They're all not firstborns who are being called into, or maybe we should say stepping into the role of firstborn. And we get the idea that Avram is the firstborn because of the line in Genesis 11, Terah became the father of Avram, Nahor, and Haran. And absolutely, under normal circumstances, you would list that in order of birth every time. Absolutely. Because that's, that's, the, that's the hierarchy. Yep. And the only reason we would question that is the same thing happened to Noah. Because the genealogy, the table of nations, well, that follows a different order than what's listed in the Noah narrative, which gives the order as Shem, Ham, and Yafet. But then the table of nations changes it, and the order is different. So if we had caught that in the Noah story, our antennas would already be up when we heard this one going, okay, is that the right birth order? And we might have picked up on this in ways that Marty missed when I first did this back in 2016. So so that's the actual answer to that. One tradition says, you're right, Haran was eight years old when he fathered Yiska. I don't like that tradition. Most, like the majority of the Jewish conversation doesn't necessarily like that tradition. You can even put the two traditions together if you have to. But that's the least popular. I definitely like this not firstborn motif taking place in the Midrash there. So that's that's the tradition that I would cling to and how I would answer that question, which will now appear in the show notes of that episode, and I won't get that email anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so great. I'll probably record a little stinger or something to throw at the beginning of the episode. There you go. I love that. Hey, when you're done with this, be sure to check out episode 208 or whatever this is. Yes, exactly. It's beautiful. Uh, so I, I think I have a related question. Um, so there's two traditions, two Midrash traditions. So the Midrash isn't this singular thing. It's two separate things or... That's a great question. The Midrash is the ongoing commentary. Uh, you could say, and 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 Midrash is really tricky because some of it's like literally canonized. Some of it has a sense of authority in the Jewish world, like the Orthodox Jewish world. Um, and then and then there's some of it that's like just kind of like tradition. And then there's like in the same way we would think about church history and church tradition in the Jewish world, or excuse me, in the Christian world. In our Christian world, we talk about church history and we talk about church tradition. And if we talk about those things well and intentionally, those are two separate things. Like church history isn't inspired or it doesn't have – like I'm not saying it's inspired, but church history is history. Like it's written by historians. You read about it with Eusebius. I don't know if we would call Josephus church history, but like there are historians and historians write church history for the purpose of cataloging history. But then there is church tradition. And the tradition says that this apostle died here and is buried there, but there's another tradition over there that says this is buried over there. And so we can kind of understand the uh, the concept of traditions 
I would say the Jews maybe take this conversation a little bit more seriously when it comes to the diversity of those traditions. But Midrash really is. It's it's commentary. It's it's elevated commentary. Like it's it's not like anybody it's not like any theory that anybody ever had is a part of the Midrash. It's those recognized, authorized, sometimes canonized conversations from a Jewish perspective by those rabbis that had, what was the word that we used, Brent, in session three? Rabbis have to have shmika. Shmika. Like, they have to have authority. Now, once the temple is destroyed in AD 70, which we needed to talk about in session six at some point, we need to talk about the destruction of, and a little bit of, like, Jewish history. That'll be fun. We'll do that sometime. But when the temple is destroyed, shmicha becomes Jewish ordination. If you are ordained as a Jewish rabbi, that's why Marty says, never call me a rabbi with a capital R. I am not a rabbi. Please don't call me a rabbi. Never. If you want to call me a rabbi with a small R, kind of like nudge, nudge, wink, wink, kind of elbowing me, like that's cool, like whatever. My students always called me rabs. I said, hey, make it a little R. I'm okay. Um, But never call me a capital R rabbi, rabbi because a capital R comes from a person that has given their whole life to studying all this stuff, being ordained in the Jewish and back in ancient Judaism, Second Temple, post-Second Temple Judaism, that ordination was shmicha. It was the ability to speak into this commentary. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that was a good question, and that's really what we're looking at here. That's why there are, there's different – there's not one midrash. There's not one stream of tradition. There's multiple streams. And those streams like weave and intersect and good rabbis, good rabbis that are trained and ordained and know their midrash well, well, they're weaving with all these different traditions, this beautiful tapestry. Because they have to use a tradition. They're not allowed to like come up with something new. They have to use what's old, but they use what's old to weave something beautiful and in, in certain respects, new. They're using old to make something the next piece of the commentary, the next piece of the conversation. So that's how it, how it kind of functions. So of these two traditions that we're looking at for the story of Avram, uh, are either of them in that authoritative canonized category or where, where do they kind of fall? That's a great question. Um, I, I, I believe all of, both those traditions are going to be and what they would consider authoritative midrash, I believe. I would have to go find the sources. I know one of them should be right in Genesis Rabbah, I believe, I think. Um, but then, and all the different pieces of the midrash are different. And some of our listeners, Brent, honestly, are better at the midrash already than I am. I give the midrash, I'm always kind of in it, in this passing sense. Like Marty has a lot of things I got to do. I got to I got to do a lot of things for my job. I just don't get to study all day. Wish I could. So I'll like interact with the Midrash when it, when I'm passing through it, when it's relevant to what I'm studying, what I'm teaching. I don't get to spend a whole bunch of time. Some of our listeners, because of our podcast, have really gotten into it, and they're already Like I've been interacting with the Midrash for 12, going on 13, 14 years. Some of our listeners have been at this for like, but they've been really concentrated for the last two or three years, and they're better with the Midrash at this point than I am, which is awesome. Like, go, guys, go. Like, one of the coolest things is to watch some of my former students get to take some of the ideas that I live in and just take them way further than me. In the Jewish world, that would hopefully be a testament to what who we, who we are as teachers and what we've been able to do with the podcast, not to toot our own horn, but that's how that's how you would expect it to work. Like, 
those that come behind us should do this better than we do. Um, so there's a lot of people out there that do this better. I, so there, there could be listeners that actually could answer your question here better than I'm going to today. I believe both of those are going to be in what's going to be considered authorized midrush. Um, now, what's what's relevant for us is that we want to make sure that we distinguish as whatever you want to call us, Christians, as followers of Jesus. If we're coming from the worldview that we come from, I find my, I plant my feet relatively firmly in the evangelical world, even though I'm probably one of their frustrating children. <laughs> uh, they're my family. Somebody's got to stir the pot. Somebody's got to stir the pot. I think it was Martin Luther back in the Reformation that said, you know, the church may be a whore, but that whore is my mother. Like, that's always been one of my favorite quotes. It's my family. It's my family. As weird and dysfunctional as they might be, as screwed up as they might be, that's who I am. So my feet are kind of firmly planted in that camp. So it's important for me and for, I think, a lot of our listeners to make sure that we're always reaffirming we don't use Midrash in an authoritative, inspired sense. I don't hold the Midrash on the same level that I hold Torah or the scripture, or I'm going to come at this from a pretty, I think what we're going to call evangelical orthodox, like understanding of the inspiration of the scriptures. I do believe, Brent Billings, that if I got to pick a commentary, if I'm going to pick a commentary, the Midrash is by far the best commentary I can pick. I could go to this library, you know, that I have sitting behind me and I could, I could, I could grab a commentary that was by some really brilliant people. And honestly, some really brilliant people. I also have a few commentaries written by a couple of nudniks, but nevertheless. Um, but none of those commentaries would be as good as a few thousand years, a couple thousand years worth of conversation, s- systematic conversation, peer-reviewed, held accountable through a system of tradition and authority. It's a pretty good, that is a pretty darn good commentary. So if I have to pick a commentary, it's not inspired, but but I will pick that one. And honestly, again, it's not inspired, but I hold myself pretty, pretty you know this about me, Brent, I, I kind of hold myself pretty accountable to the Midrash. I'm not going to teach something that is kind of outside the bounds of what Jewish tradition has decided, like, after centuries and centuries of talking about this. We've decided this is, like, I don't feel like, uh, how much hubris, like how much, did I say that right? Did, did I say that word right? Hubris? Sure. Yeah. Okay, excellent. How much arrogance do I have to have to go, well, Brent, I read the Bible, and it seems obvious to me. <laughs> like, to think that after centuries, those Jewish rabbis who have this thing memorized, who soak and immerse themselves in this text together as a unit throughout generations, have simply missed something that I, I see so clearly. Like that would, that would be the height of hubris to me. So I, 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 try, I, I hold myself pretty, if I have some idea that I don't have in Jewish tradition, I'm usually going to qualify it and be like, I don't know, I've, I've wondered this, but I, I'm probably not going not gonna to teach it. Does that kind of answer that question? Yeah, and I think what we were talking about a little bit ago about there being multiple traditions within the Midrash. Like, the Midrash is not this unified thing. It's not, here's the only way you can think. There are options. And as you said, the one idea is significantly more popular than the other. 
in this case. Uh, but we have we have room to work. The the midrash is not this constrictive thing, but it is built on thousands of years of conversation and wrestling in community with people who know their text extremely well. And I think uh, I'm sure we've talked about this at some point, but the, the midrash is rooted in the text. Like the the ideas in the midrash are built off of something that's in the text. It's not some random thought coming in from the side, there's some element of scripture somewhere that they're rooting every idea in the Midrash off of. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a, that's, that's a really good point. And, um, I, I will often say like, there's, there's a Midrash for that, you know, the whole, there's an app for that. There's a Midrash for that. Like whatever case you want to make, if you know your Midrash, you're going to be able to find a Midrash to support. The Midrash can be deeply patriarchal like destructively patriarchal in my mind. The Midrash can also be unbelievably liberating for women. Like there's whatever kind of worldview you want to hold, if you know your Midrash, you can find the Midrash that goes that direction for you. No no different than how most, uh, well, not most, no different than how many people use the Bible. No most. Uh, You had it right the first time. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. I was trying to to give people the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And which makes me think of, like, if we were to circle back to this Sarah Aniska conversation, like, go dive in and learn things that even Marty hasn't uncovered yet. I'll give you a really good source. We're going to put this in the show notes. Um, By the way, there's also a YouTube video I made just about the Midrash in general. Another frequently asked question I get is, hey, help me understand the Midrash. So there's a YouTube video that I made about the Midrash. It'll give you lots of tools in engaging the Midrash. We're going to put that in the show notes. Please watch that before before emailing me any additional questions. Make sure you watch that video because that may answer them. Um, But then uh, we'll link another source here, which is the Jewish Women's Archive. Jewish Women's Archive, JWA. So JWA.org. Jewish Women's Archive, it is one of my favorite resources for interacting with the Midrash, predominantly when it deals with characters, female characters, women characters, but I find it actually has all kinds of Midrash about all kinds of things. It focuses on 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 women characters, but it is so good. Like, just go to jwa.org and just search for Yiska, Sarai, do, do, do Sarah, and just see the plethora of midrash that surrounds and it'll 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 give you like a synopsis like you don't have to read all the midrash it'll like tell you it'll give you like a blog post like an article like an abstract of here's who sarah is according to the midrash and some tradition says this and some tradition says it's this beautiful beautiful resource and there's others out there and we'll talk about that in the youtube video that i talked about but um just a great resource learn how to lean into that and use that and you're gonna you're gonna go crazy and just being able to access some of those conversations can be great. Yeah, I'm a little disappointed you didn't uh, title that video a little bit more for the YouTube algorithm. Everything you need to know about the Midrash in less than 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be that would be smart of me. And yet here I am being concise and normal. You cannot spend 30 minutes and know everything you need to know about the Midrash. And the other thing I uh, wanted to ask you about, so the the text that we're talking about is pretty old, but when did the Midrash commenting on that text come about? 
Right. And so different pieces of the Midrash are going to fall underneath different dates as far as when they're gathered together. And, and, why, and so we really want to unpack this question and why it's relevant to using the Midrash as an interpretive tool. Because like the Midrash, as far as like a canonized, authoritative piece of lit, like it's not really a piece of literature, a library of literature that you can use and go to does not show up until well after Jesus. Like early second century is where we finally have it kind of like written down and canonized, then later on in that century. So the first piece that we end up kind of having is the Mishnah, which ends up getting expanded later on, about a century, just under a century later, to the Talmud. So you have the Mishnah and then the Talmud and then all kinds of other pieces. Now, before it's canonized as the Mishnah, like you have a bunch of these pieces that are out and about. So every now and then we'll have a Midrash. Um, and really not every now and then, like often you'll have pieces of the Mishnah and pieces of the Midrash that predate Jesus by decades, like stories that are out there. And some of the things we shared in in session three, like the story of the transfiguration is like one of my favorite. Um, and in that episode, we talked about a Midrash that predates Jesus by, I believe it was 80 years. Um, so, so there are definitely pieces, but those pieces get pulled together and then put together in the Mishnah. And that... Mishnah doesn't happen until after Jesus. And so one of the common critiques is that, Marty, how can you use the Midrash? You shouldn't be using it as an interpretive tool because it wasn't a part of the world of the Bible, like the world of Jesus. And so it's very important to, I actually want to echo that concern because if we're not careful, we'll start pulling things that we really shouldn't be using as interpretive tools because it's way too late. That part of the Jewish conversation that development of Jewish consciousness didn't happen for 800 years, and so we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be using that piece. But there are pieces of the Midrash that are early enough, and, and even the Mishnah, even when the Mishnah doesn't, when we don't have evidence that it, it existed in the days of Jesus, what the Mishnah does do for us is it does tell us what the conversation— the Jewish conversation was doing in the days of Jesus. We can, I even like to assume it had to have been written down somewhere or been like official somewhere, but I can't say that academically. I don't get to make that leap. I kind of assume it, but at least the one thing I can say is that if I can get it to the Mishnah or earlier, it at least represents the conversation that is swirling about, we would say, in the Twitterverse in social media world. Like this is the conversation that's taking place around Jesus. It's evolving. It hasn't, maybe it hasn't taken shape, but this is where the Jewish consciousness is at. This is what they're thinking. This is how they're, how they're thinking. Um, so that's why it's relevant, but we always want to be aware of dates. And I think it will be easy to throw stones at this. If we have somebody, if we have some seminarian out there, It'll be easy to throw stones at this. But I think, Brent, we've done a pretty good job. I'm going to use the royal we there, even though it's probably me 99% of the time. I think we've done a pretty good job of trying to make sure that the Midrash we talk about is early Midrash that is more relevant to the conversation we're wanting to have as New Testament people, followers of Jesus, we're not just pulling any midrash that makes sense to us out of that. Like we're trying to pull early midrash, Second Temple Judaism conversation and commentary, 
that's what we're trying to pull. For. I'm sure I've made a mistake about a hundred times with that, but that's our that's our intent, and it's a really good thing to keep in front of us. Did that make sense? Did that make sense, Brent? I think so. Okay, I think so. Okay, so let's put to rest the Avram situation. Okay, what's what's the final word on? On how the Avram thing shakes out. Well, we don't get to give the final word. We just get to wade into the commentary. But if you want my final word, a non-shmichad, I have a non-shmichad position. It lacks all authority. It is This is meaningless, what I think. <laughs> but I, I, I'm going to say Abraham is not, Avram is not the firstborn son. Haran's the firstborn son. Which kind of leads, let's, let's close with this idea, Brent. The 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 why and how, why midrash the why of the midrash and how to relate to it right so so why do they tell so when you're reading when you have these two traditions well as well was Haran eight years old or is Avram not the firstborn which one is it ask yourself the question why why is the midrash trying to make Haran eight years old. And why is the Midrash trying to say Avram? Because it's not about what literally happened. This is not about literal history. Although the more I spend time in the Midrash, the more I'm like, man, this explains so much historically. I don't know where you draw the line. I believe it was Maimonides, one of my favorite quotes. That says, any, any man who believes everything in the Midrash is a fool. Any man who believes nothing in the Midrash is literal is a heretic. So somewhere in the middle. It's somewhere between all and nothing. Isn't that helpful? Um, so I don't know exactly how much of this is historical, but the question you start to ask is why? Why did that tradition want to say that? And why did this tradition want to say this? So Brent, let me ask you, why do you think the tradition would say, this is not an obvious question, I'm putting you on the spot here. Why would the, why would the tradition say Haran's eight years old? Why that? To emphasize the miracle of what God is doing. Okay. Like absolutely, the, could be uh, like a miraculous origin for God's family. Uh huh. Could be absolutely. If, if you're looking at it that way. Uh huh. Any other thoughts? I don't know. Here's one of the things that I hope to talk about in the next episode. I I get to be like so. It is so amazing for any like fantasy novel nerds out there. And I know I'm not known as a big fiction reader, but I do love like Middle Earth, J.R. Tolkien. Um, I do I do love a good fantasy setting for anybody that's into like you're gonna get so many like oh if you like lord of the rings you gotta check out don't 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 do that to me um for anybody that loves backstory and what i'm gonna call lore boy when you start to get into the midrash it gets crazy because you realize how many of these traditions are all interweaving and they have to make the details they have to make the backstory they have to make the lore work and so, Brent, back in session three, we chatted about a – do you remember the Midrash about Haran? Do you remember the Midrash about Avram and the furnace? Do you remember that? Uh, session three? Uh, yeah. No. We talked about the fiery furnace, and we talked about Avram and 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 how there's that ancient Midrash that Daniel was playing off about – Oh, yeah. It is the Daniel thing. Okay. And Nimrod, but we, we talked about it, I think, in session three later. But – we we had um we have we have Nimrod and he's he's like coming to the family of Terah, the sons of Terah, and he's telling them I need you to like renounce the god of is uh, your god and 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 if you remember, Haran was like, well I'm gonna 
I'm going to wait to see what happens to Avram here. And Avram was like, oh, and he, and he survives the furnace. And then Haran was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to do the same thing. But he dies in the furnace. And that's how the Midrash says Haran dies. Like that's the death of Haran. Right. Uh, uh, if, if the Midrash is trying to weave, and I don't know this, I'm speculating. I'm totally speculating right along with Brent Billings. But the kind of thing that you see the Midrash doing is what if it needs Sarah to be alive to see that story? Like she has to be alive when Huron dies in the furnace in order for that to play a part in her. Now, when you go when you go to the Jewish Women's Archive and you read about Sarah and how Sarah is one of the seven prophetesses, I never know how to say prophetess, plural. She's one of seven prophetesses in the Hebrew scripture. She's the first and most prominent Hebrew prophetess in Tanakh, in Torah, especially. Well, what's the backstory to that? What is it? So, so you're always asking the question, why is the Midrash trying to do that? So why would the Midrash be trying to make Avram not the firstborn? Because it's trying to point out that motif we spoke of earlier. It's trying to get us to realize that the invitation is to you as well. Like you might be a firstborn, but how many people are not firstborns? How many people feel like they're not the one who's supposed to be running in the lead? They're not the one who's supposed to be out in front. They're not the one who's supposed to carry the mission of God. They're not the one. And and Genesis says, the, the seed is open to anyone who wants it. Anyone who wants to partner with God. Anyone who wants to answer the call. Anyone who wants to lay their life down on behalf of other people. doesn't matter if it's your role. doesn't matter if you're the firstborn, the secondborn, the lastborn, the 14thborn. doesn't matter. Do you want to be a part of what God's doing? Show up. God's ready to partner with you. And that's the why. And that's, that also explains the how. How are we supposed to relate to the Midrash? We relate to the Midrash by asking those questions. Why is the Midrash? What is the Midrash trying to show me? The Midrash is trying to not explain history. It's not trying to explain history. Midrash is stinking crazy half the time. The Midrash is trying to get me to see something. So what is the Midrash trying to get me to see? That's how we're to relate to the Midrash. Boy, this has been a long conversation, Brent. <laughs> well, you know, four and a half of e- four and a half years of emails will do that for you. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, it's not quite a record yet, but dang. Good stuff. I look forward to the next one. We're going to do some more Midrash. Yeah, we have a few more episodes of Midrash coming up, so... We'll, we'll get into it a little bit. Absolutely. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode. Uh, if you have any questions, you can go to com. Check out the show notes. Be sure to um, check out the Jewish Women's Archive. Sounds like a great uh, a great afternoon of, of digging into that. Check out Marty's YouTube video on Midrash. That'll uh, help give you some tools uh, as well to, to dig in. And if you have any other questions outside of... Um, while we're studying the Midrush, you can get a hold of Marty on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And we will talk to you again soon with more Midrush. Mm-hmm.